1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. In the final chapters of 1 Timothy, Paul's going to deal with our relationships in the church, in the congregation, in the fellowship. But we as Christians are called to a ministry of mutual support. And there's a reason why Paul is actually going to be giving these instructions because it presupposes that you're going to be spending time with each other ministering to one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, supporting one another. So Paul is going to provide guidance in broad categories to at least seven groups within the church. He's going to begin, number one, to the older saints in verses 1 through 2. And number 2, later on, he's going to talk about widows in chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. Church leaders in chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Servants or slaves in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And you're going to wonder, what does that have to do with me? And you're going to find out. To troublemakers in chapter 6, verse 3. To the rich in chapter 6, verse 6. To the educated in chapter 6, verse 20. So Paul is going to remind Timothy of how leaders, servants, are to conduct themselves in the church and in the fellowship. Part of the pastor's job is to confront sin, to deal with difficulty. And so part of the pastor's job also isn't just simply to rebuke older saints, but rather to exhort and encourage. And we should note right from the start that Paul is going to be using familiar terms. Father, mother, brother, sister. These are intimate terms of relationship and familiarity. And there's a reason why there's this constant admonition, if you will, that the church, the church is like a family and that might cause some alarm for some of you because we live in a culture and a society where not everyone grew up in what we could call a normal home. In the 1950s, you could watch Leave it to Beaver. You could watch my three sons and and you get you get an idea of well you know what do normal families look like uh, is a normal family one with a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters who care about each other and you go hey wait a minute that doesn't seem like the house that I grew up in and so if you grew up in an abusive house you're going to go you, you know you read stuff like treat Older women like you treat your mother and then the back of your mind you go, you treated your mother like dirt. And you go, clearly that's not what the Bible has in mind. It's not asking you to treat people in an abusive fashion. So we're going to get there in just a moment. Paul's premise is that normal families are going to function with normal affections. Chuck Colson wrote, quote, the family is the most basic unit of government. As the first community to which a person is attached and the first authority under which a person learns to live, the family establishes a society's most basic values and you grew up in a home that valued something or didn't value other things. And so all of this may be very, very new. So let's try and understand What Paul means when he speaks to Timothy and in verse 1 and when it says older men we treat as fathers. He says do not rebuke an older man but exhort him as a father. Paul is going to give two guidelines to Timothy. One is negative and one is positive. The first rebuke not. The second entreat. Exhort as a father. So right away we learn we are to respect our elders. 
Again, some of you grew up in that kind of a home where moms and dads and brothers and sisters, if you will, or grandmas and grandpas, they taught you, respect your elders, respect those people who are older than you. We're not to become impatient or resentful with the elderly or with older men. Grandma's wisdom still applies. Learn all you can from old people. They've been down the road that you must travel. A Greek proverb says, respect gray hairs. An American proverb says, color gray hairs. But in the ancient world, it wasn't shameful to hide your age. In the ancient world, you were to treat the elderly with respect and dignity. And here's part of the point. In the ancient world, private rebuke was always considered preferable to public rebuke. And so the word translated rebuke is very, very important to our understanding here. It's the Greek word epiplezo. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it means to severely censure or sternly reprimand. The word intimates violence, harshness. Literally, this word literally it has a prefix and a root word, epi, plezo. It literally meant to strike at or beat with your fists. If you grew up in the kind of world that I grew up in, it meant fist fight. In other words, you resolve the problems by clenching your fists and hitting each other. So literally, that's actually what it meant. And as a metaphor, it meant to verbally hit someone or to beat them up, to rep reprimand them or harshly deal with them. We have a, a word in our culture and our society that describes that kind of behavior. It's called verbal abuse. You don't heap humiliating speech on one another. It seems crazy to have to say this. We're not to yell or scream or push, either literally or metaphorically. There is no room at all in the church and in the family to hit each other or to hurt each other. That's what he's talking about. So the older man is the seasoned saint. By the way, in the ancient world of Rome and Greece, you got elder status, usually when you hit the big six, zero. You got pushed into that elite category. So here, the older man is the seasoned saint. But we have to ask ourselves another question. Does age always bring wisdom? That's the right answer. No. Age doesn't always bring wisdom. Not always. So we're to think about this, I think, in the most healthy way possible. We're reminded that we begin with the premise that older saints always deserve respect and dignity. It's also to be expected that you begin with the premise that people older than you have, have experience and wisdom that you don't have. And so therefore, it's probably unwise to ignore them, bypass them, neglect them, or, or don't include them in the process. My friend Jay Adams wrote a whole book about this, and he entitled it, Wrinkled But Not Ruined. And I love that. I remember seeing a, a picture of, 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 a, of an older man and this child was touching uh, the, the, the older man's face and, and the child said, Does, do those wrinkles hurt? And he, he smiles. He goes, no, it doesn't hurt. I, I know it, it might look a little uncomfortable, but, but, but it's, it's not going to hurt you. Samuel Johnson wrote, quote, he that lives must grow old 
And he that would rather grow old than die has God to thank for the infirmities of old age. Someone once said, hey, look, when, it, when you look at age versus the alternative, then all of a sudden age starts to look pretty attractive. Guy King said, quote, accept it, adjust to it, adorn it, unquote. So does age sometimes bring optimism? Yes. Strong opinions? Yes. You know, we've all heard the cliche, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And sometimes older people become set in their ways. Sometimes they become reluctant to embrace new ideas or new ministries or new methods that are unfamiliar to them. We even sometimes get older people who complain or murmur or criticize. They'll complain or murmur or criticize about the lights, about the paint about the projector, about the sound, and then all of a sudden the murmur, the criticism, the opposition becomes greater and greater and it leads to divisions. And Paul wants Timothy to be able to deal with people who are older with grace and dignity, to correct and discipline as a father not as an enemy. Again, you may or may not have had a good experience with your father or your mother. You may or may not have had a good experience that when you, when you had conflict or confrontation, you may have been able to, to solve it and resolve it in a way that was God-honoring and respectful, or maybe you didn't. But whether you did or whether you didn't, Paul is urging Timothy that you must deal with dignity, with respect, with propriety, with the older person, not as an enemy, but as a person who's your family and you care about them. Now, having said all of that, children who've had to deal with fathers and mothers, have you ever had to deal with your, your elderly parent and it didn't turn out the way you'd hoped? That mother or father decided that this was a decision that was going to be best for them and that they were willing to live with the consequences no matter, no matter, no matter, no matter what. Again, we deal with each other with dignity, propriety, respect. John Newton, at the ripe old age of 82, said, My memory's nearly gone. I remember two things. I'm a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. Wouldn't it be great if those are the last two things you remember? <laughs> Again, you have to understand the context. The context is in a situation where someone older than you is sinning and you still have to deal with it. But you do it with tact, with grace. The Bible says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. And then he goes, young men, we treat as brothers. Look what it says at the end of the verse, younger men as brothers. And by the way, you might think younger men, what does Paul have in mind and what do they mean by that? In the Roman Empire, younger men was basically anyone who was under the age of 40. So you might be thinking, hey, look, 30, that's mature, and it is. But that's part of the point that they're making. Again, if your experience growing up was imagine Paul saying to you, treat each other like you did your brothers and sisters. Again, remember the thing. Well, again, we treated each other with like dirt. We had knockdown, drag out fist fights. When you were younger with your sip, I don't know what, what situation you grew up with. I'm the oldest of five children. 
My mother was, for the most part of her life, a single mom. I never had to wear hand-me-downs because I was always first in line. And then second in line, and third in line, and fourth in line, and fifth in line. And each and every one of you were somewhere in the line. You were the older brother or sister, or you were the middle brother or sister, or you were the younger brother and sister. Older siblings can often come across as bossy or domineering. And if you were a middle or a youngest child and your older brother or your older sister is waving their finger at you and you say, you're not the boss of me. That's not what the text has in mind. It isn't about treating each other again badly. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2 verse 6. Young men likewise exhort, it's the same word, to be sober-minded, unquote. Here's part of the point that I think I want you to understand. Does Timothy have authority in in the position that God has called him to do? Has he been placed there and given authority by Paul the Apostle and the giftings which are in his life by the power of the Holy Spirit? I think that the answer is yes. But even as an authoritative pastor, teacher, leader, Paul's admonition is don't treat people like you're the guy who's in charge and you're the boss but with simplicity and humility as members of the same family. You treat each other as brothers and sisters. Paul's point is to interact with kindness, with gentleness, with patience. And again, I am so sorry. I am so sorry if that wasn't your experience growing up. In other words, when I use the term kindness, gentleness, and patience, and you go, that doesn't sound like the family I was with. That's the family that you're with now. That's the family that you're with now. The expectation should be kindness and gentleness patience and respect. No wonder Paul will say, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And by the way, think of all the great ideas that, that have been thought up when people were still young. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs revolutionized the world way under the age of 40. Whoever that guy is who started Facebook, he was a multiple billionaire before he reached the age of 30. The truth is that some of the best and greatest ideas have taken place when people were young. Einstein's theory of relativity was dreamt up by Einstein when he was 26 years old. Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence when he was 27 years old. We're making a very serious mistake if we think that young people don't have anything to offer. That there is a bright and creative component of people at every single time of their life, whether they're older or whether they're younger. But again, in moments of honesty, if we were to ask a different question, what is it that young men need? What do they really need? Guidance? I think so. Support? I think so. Discipleship? Direction? Discipline? I think so. I couldn't help but noticing that in watching just very brief clips of the Olympics, they were talking about Michael Phelps, who I guess has now won 22 medals, and they go, he's, the, he's an old man, he's 31. The world class athletes on this world class stage are operating at a particular moment in their life. But what all of those athletes have in common is discipline, devotion, determination. 
And imagine if you can take people with discipline and devotion and determination and then you turn them loose. You know, I know that sometimes people lament the generation that's after them. But it's always been my experience that God might be saving the very best for last. And that it could be that this is the generation that will make the most amazing contribution. There was a very famous singer named uh, Charlie Peacock who said that maybe this will be the generation that will give their lives to the things of God. And if they put their mind on heavenly things, then they have a chance to put the love back into loving. So what do young men need? Guidance, support, discipleship, direction. What they don't need is smug, superior heirs. We're not to overreact when people are taken in a sin. Our first response shouldn't be contempt and disgust, but it should be kindness and compassion and support as we, the Bible says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, knowing that you yourself are very much subject to the very same temptation. So imagine if you're older and a younger person comes to you and they reveal stuff that isn't exactly healthy. Again, the challenge is to be brothers and sisters. We're to put on brotherly love, spirit-filled compassion and care. And so that's what he's saying to Timothy. Younger men as brothers. And look what it says. Older women were to treat as mothers. How did you treat your mother? In real life. And so again, when he says, and older women as mothers, this might be an absolutely foreign concept to some people. So the way that I would challenge you, encourage you, and maybe you treated your mother with the utmost courtesy, the utmost respect, the utmost honor. I think that what I would do is, again, appeal to you to think about how Jesus treated women in the New Testament. When you read about the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and his interaction with the women in his life, there are three words that come to my mind. Dignity, love, respect. Again, in the ancient cultures, women weren't always treated with courtesy. They weren't always treated with dignity. They weren't always treated with respect. In many, many cultures in the ancient world, women had very little presence other than to be somewhat elevated above property. Paul knew that even in pagan cultures, families had to discipline and defend in the home the minimum standards of human decency in order to survive. Healthy human relationships between fathers and mothers and sons and daughters in that ancient world, even in that ancient world, was usually enough of an appeal that when Paul is making these points, that he understands that normal people and normal families, moms and dads care about their children. Children care about their moms and dads. That's supposed to be normal. And so again, if it wasn't your experience, at some point you probably came to the conclusion, wow, my experience really wasn't a normal experience. In the book of Proverbs we read, my son, hear the instructions of your father. Don't forsake the law of your mother. In Proverbs 20. 3.22, it says, listen to your father who begot you. Don't despise your mother when she is old. The, 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 the sense seems to be that we appreciate the contribution of the ladies and the ministry of the ladies 
But what happens when a lady requires discipline or correction? What happens if you're a younger person and an older person is doing something weird or, or, or sinful or inappropriate? How in the world are we supposed to deal with it? And once again, the overarching instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy is do it with gentleness, do it with respect, do it with tenderness, do it with understanding, do it in such a way where the person understands that you love them and honor them and respect them and care about them and you're not looking for reasons to hurt or get rid of people, you're looking for reasons to stay together. And so we're not smug. We don't put on airs of contempt again or disrespect, but we appeal and plead and encourage. Again, some of you may have had experiences with your older mom and dad, and it didn't always turn out. But hopefully the point is that you love your mother and your father. You care about them. The appeals and the pleadings and the encouragements isn't for the, for, to harm them, but to ensure that they're safe and that they're secure and that they're fine. But even after all of that, if you're talking with your mom and your dad and they're committed to doing whatever it is that they want to do, what do you suppose they're going to do? Whatever they want to do. So what do we do as a family? We don't manipulate each other. We don't hurt each other. We beg, we plead, we pray. And then we realize something. That grown men and women make decisions that sometimes aren't the best decisions. But we respect their decision. We respect people's ability to make decisions. Where do we draw the line? When the decisions that they make are sinful and harmful to the family. But even then, do we hit them or hurt them or push them down or shove them in front of the Calvary Chapel van? That's probably not a good idea. And so it says young ladies we treat as sisters. Look what it says. Younger women as sisters with all purity. And again, Paul reminds Timothy that we're to treat younger women. And he adds that admonition with all purity. In both the ancient world as well as the modern world, you can imagine immorality and lust was a huge difficulty. Timothy's not only to avoid what is certainly sinful, but he's to avoid any conduct that might be viewed as inappropriate. And he was to avoid every appearance of evil. And so when he says younger women as sisters with all purity, the leaders were to conduct themselves with purity towards the younger women. Just like in your family. Again, I'm assuming that the family is healthy and normal. In a healthy and a normal family, young ladies are to be protected. They're to be guarded. They're to be nourished. And again, my deepest, deepest sympathies if that wasn't your experience. But that's supposed to be the experience in the church. Younger women are to be respected and protected. And if they're to be respected and protected, I need you to understand why. Because remember, the pastor, my job, the leaders, the, the, the pastor and the leader's job within the congregation is to create a climate where people can grow spiritually. Do we want a church where older people can grow spiritually? Do we want a church where older women can grow spiritually? Do we want... A church where young men can grow spiritually. Do we want a church where young women can grow spiritually? What do you suppose the answer is? 
That's what we want. And so everything that we say and everything that we do has to be evaluated in light of our goal. Are you growing spiritually? Is this helping you? Is this hindering you? Is this hurting you? It was Alfred Lord Tennyson who wrote, quote, My strength is as the strength of ten because my heart is pure. In what sense? I can get stronger. And I can do what's right because my heart is pure. Purity refers to the same quality that's already been mentioned in chapter 4, verse 12. Remember, we've already gone over this. Remember what Paul has already said to Timothy. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in purity. In what sense? In the sense of... That it covers moral behavior and the transparent attitudes without hidden intentions. And that's probably the key. Without hidden intentions. And you may have had experiences. You may have had experiences at other churches. You may have had experiences in this church. Where you ask and you answer the question... What is this person saying? What is this person doing? What does this person mean? What does this person want? And every pastor, every leader, every leader, it should, they shouldn't have a, a hidden agenda or hidden intentions. Our Agenda is to love you, encourage you, and to create an atmosphere where you can grow spiritually. And by the way, you won't be able to grow spiritually if people are hurting you or trying to consume you or see you as some sort of commodity that they get to consume. Once again, we are to correct and discipline and love with encouragement and exhortation. Again, not in severity or disgust. So imagine you're in this church and things are happening and then all of a sudden something weird happens. How are we supposed to deal with that? And again, according to what Paul is telling Timothy, we are to reset and go, hey, wait a minute. You know, what, what just happened doesn't seem to be consistent with the goals and, 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 the, and, and, and the agendas, if you will, of, of, of what Geno's communicated about spiritual growth. In the ancient world, sexual exploitation was a huge problem. This isn't something unique to our generation. And it didn't begin with our generation. I'm sure each and every one of you have heard the term sex trafficking. I'm sure that each and every one of you have heard the term abuse. I'm sure that each and every one of you have heard the term incest. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for confronting a man in their, for failing to confront a man in their congregation who apparently was involved sexually with his own father's wife. Read stepmother and then read gross. But again, they were so open-minded and, and avant-garde in the Corinthian church this was a place where every kind of sexual expression was allowed. Again, Paul is writing in a culture to a group of people who celebrated. They didn't mourn sexual immorality. They celebrated it. Every kind of wicked and evil sexual expression that you can think of, they practiced it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul gives a sordid description of false teachers who make their way into the fellowship, who have fake Christian commitments, who, according to him, creep into households, make captive of gullible women, loaded with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never coming to a knowledge of the truth, unquote. He describes a group of men who sneak into the church for the express purpose of praying. Not praying like P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. P 
P-R-E-Y-N-G, predators who come into a church to take advantage of people who are vulnerable and weak and hurt and we're sad and sickened by anyone who would come into our fellowship with the express purpose to exploit vulnerable women or men for that matter or children for personal gain And that's why everything that we do at this church, everything that we do, whether we're placing your children in the children's ministry, there's a reason why we have a background check. Guess what? Everyone who works in our children's ministry has to undergo a background check. If you go into our children's ministry, you'll know that there's Jack and Jill restrooms over there because your children should never be left alone. Your children should never be left unattended. Again, if you even think just for a moment, why would anyone go to any church? Don't you think that the normal, the normal, the most basic thing that has to happen in order to go to a church, that moms and dads have to feel like their children are safe? That makes sense to you, doesn't it? And so I, as the pastor, want to make sure that everyone is safe. And so this is why we have to deal in severity with people who are sexual predators. You can't come to our church and take advantage of people and hurt people and get away with it. That's my point. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of those of old, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. The Bible doesn't just prohibit sexual expression outside of marriage. Jesus is making it clear that your heart matters, that your thinking matters, that the way that you inform your mind matters. And some people give themselves permission to feed their fantasies of lust and they comfort themselves by simp- by saying something like, well, this isn't, you know, looking doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's going on inside of my heart. It doesn't matter what's going on inside of my heart. Just so long as I'm not acting out on the inside and Jesus is giving you a severe warning. He's saying it does matter what's going on inside of your heart because what's going on inside of your heart will eventually leak out. And so we're not to help one another fall into the trap of sexual exploitation. Fathers are to protect their sons and daughters. And in both the ancient world and the modern culture, children have been victims of gross sexual abuse and mistreatment. And so think about this for just a moment. If our goal is spiritual growth. If our goal is health, if our goal as a family is Christian character, Christ-like character, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how can that happen in the presence of sexual misconduct? And since our goal is spiritual growth, we focus on Jesus. We focus on the Bible. We focus on God's will. We focus on spiritual disciplines. We focus on knowing the truth. We focus on defending the truth. And then we focus on our own hearts and behavior and conduct towards one another. That's why Paul is saying what he's saying to Timothy. We have to come to grips with something. That there's certain kinds of behavior that is unwelcome and harmful. Like sexual humor, like unwelcome touch, like inappropriate touch. In other words, we have to come to grips with... And again, here's the challenge that we face. You may have grown up in a home like I grew up in, in the sense uh, Italian people are very demonstrative. They're very affectionate. They, they'll throw their arms around each other. But we've got to be sensitive and aware and, and, and on guard to be 
sensitive and appropriate in our conduct with each other. And so that if there's something weird or wrong that's going on, that we have the courage to be able to talk about it and say, you know what, I thought that that was inappropriate or, or please don't do that or I'm uncomfortable with that. We have to respect boundaries. Healthy families have healthy boundaries. And those, those boundaries should always include respect for people's privacy, respect for people's dignity, respect for people's modesty. So clearly God has designed men and women to be attracted to one another. A careful reading of the Bible, I, I use the term God has placed within each and every one of this, this thing that I call the urge to merge. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the way God made us. But we have to express that in a way that's going to be God honoring. Clearly, we are to make every effort to not put each other at risk. And so this is where we have to have this kind of honest communication. And I have to say stuff honestly like, I need your help. I need your help. You need to help me so that I'm never put in a position that might be considered inappropriate or that would cause concern. Billy Graham, early on in his ministry, made a vow that he wasn't going to ever be with a woman by himself other than his wife, and that he was never ever going to be alone with the money, with the ministry. In other words, that he knew that there were temptable situations that might create harm and problem for his ministry. And so part of your job, and I'm giving you permission to do this, I'm giving you permission to help me to never be placed in a position where it might grieve the Lord or grieve the ministry or put the ministry at risk. And then you need to be able to do that with each other. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, abstain from every form or appearance of evil. Try to put yourself in positions where you're not going to get hurt or you're going to put other people at risk. We're reminded that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, women were encouraged to adorn themselves with modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. In other words, just like men have a responsibility not to be predators towards women, women also have a responsibility to dress in such a way and conduct themselves in such a way to not put people unreasonably at risk. I'm not saying you have to wear a burqa. I'm not saying put a black cloth over your head and, and pretend that you're not a girl. I'm saying be wise, be prudent, be modest, all the while keeping purity in your mind. And so... It was C.T. Studd, Charles Thomas Studd, who famously said, the best test of a sanctified man <laughs> is to ask his family about him. That's true. Wives, children, they probably have a good idea of what you're like when nobody else is looking. And again, do you know what all these age groups and all these genders have in common? Each has unique pressures, temptations, and tests. Each has unique gifts, callings, blessings, vulnerabilities. And so throughout this, these two tiny verses, Paul is reminding Timothy, we're a family. Be careful. 
be wise. It's like a physician. The first rule of the physician is do no harm. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul writes, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. When he's talking to the Thessalonians, he says, exhort. That word, by the way, means to strengthen. Let me give you a different word picture. It's the same word in the Greek language that is one of the titles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the parakletos, the one who comes alongside to help. Parakaleo, it means one who comes alongside to strengthen in a moment of weakness. The thing that I think about when I think about this world word is broken down on the side of the road, calling triple A, saying, can you come and give me what I need in order to get back on the road? What could be worse if I call triple A and instead of helping me start my car, he hits me on the head and steals my car? Would you renew your membership at AAA? That's not, that's not what AAA is supposed to do. They're supposed to help you get back on the road. And the church isn't supposed to hurt you. And its leaders aren't supposed to hurt you. And you're not supposed to hurt each other. So what are we to do? We warn those who are unruly, those who are divisive, those who are out of step, those who are out of touch, those who are committed to disrupting the unity and the peace and the fellowship of the church. And so if a person in our church brings division, again, with gentleness and respect, we're supposed to point this out. We're supposed to encourage them not to do that. We're, we're giving them every opportunity to repent and not conduct themselves with that kind of behavior. But if people are committed to hurting you or to hurting your children, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to make sure that they're not here. Does that seem unreasonable to you? We're to uphold the weak. We're to comfort those who are in constant trouble, difficulty, who for whatever reason never seem to rise above their difficulties or get to go forward or be steadfast in Christ. In the old King James it says, feeble-minded. And again, it doesn't mean people who are stupid. What it means, it means people who for whatever reason don't seem to have the resolve necessary to go forward in their walk with Christ and we're supposed to help them. We uphold the weak. We help those who are spiritually, morally, physically weak. Spiritual and moral support is probably the central idea. Be patient with all. It means usually in the context, whenever the Bible says be patient with all, it usually means because there are troubled people who are making it difficult to be patient. I heard this story. I heard this story of this lady's pushing her cart through the, through the grocery store and, and the baby's crying and screaming and the lady says, Eva, I'm going to be done in five minutes. And then pushes past the candy and the, the kid's saying, I want candy, candy, candy. Eva, be patient. We're almost to the checkout line. The, the, the baby's crying, crying, crying. Go, Eva, be patient. Um, we're almost to the car. And then this man looks behind and says, you know, I couldn't help but notice you know, how just patient and kind and, and, and patient you've been with little Eva. And she goes, no, my daughter's name is Karen. I'm Eva. <laughs> Sometimes we have to talk to ourselves so that we can muddle through this situation spiritual support 
moral support. When Paul says be patient, it usually means that you're going to be dealing with someone who's going to test your patience and rub you the wrong way. And that's why the Bible says, treat them like your family. Your father may have rubbed you the wrong way. Your mother may have rubbed you the wrong way. Your brothers and sisters may have rubbed you the wrong way. But at some point you realized in your life that when all is said and done, for many of us, our family is all that we have. And for many of us, our church family becomes the opportunity to exercise the kind of conduct that, we, that may have been less than, than what we grew up with. But we have this incredible opportunity to do it right now. And so Paul is going to help Timothy think it through. And so my job is to help you not only think it through, but to motivate you to do what Paul asks Timothy to do. So, are you surprised? Now you see why I could only do two verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we commit this time to you. Lord, we thank you for the grace and, and the mercy that you've entrusted to us. Lord, we know that sometimes it's very, very difficult to do what's right or to say what's right. Lord, we know that sometimes even going to church is just a hard thing to do. Because we see someone or we experience something that makes us uncomfortable. And maybe even threatens us. And yet, Lord, we know, or at least I know, that church should be a safe place. It should be the safest place in the whole wide world. This should not be the place where people get hurt. This should be the place where people get help. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to help each other, that we could conduct ourselves in such a way that we could accomplish what it is that we really want to accomplish spiritual growth. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that Jesus can give us a heart and a life and a strength to accomplish what it is that you've asked us to do. And so, Lord, I pray for these men and women. I pray that they would care about what you care about and that they would treat each other the way that they want to be treated. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said, let's stand. <laughs>